I think that a lot of it is just the training and learning and development culture needs to change first. And I think that that's, you know, one of the first things that has to be addressed a lot of times in those practices when you're onboarding people. Swinging doors are great for veterinary hospital revenue, but for team retention, not so much. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders community online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today the training whiz, Ori Sizzlewitz, has thoughts on why your onboarding and training might be a problem. She's been in and out of the veterinary industry, and now she's back in as an education development specialist at Patterson Veterinary Supply. Here, she gives some first steps and broader thoughts about the roadblocks to new hires feeling well-trained, well-supported, and well on their way on a ladder of success and promotion at your veterinary practice. Ori, what is your weird career trajectory that brings you new insight back to VetMed? So basically, the quick version of this is that I was a licensed vet tech in veterinary medicine. I was in emergency in neurology, went into cardiology for a little while, and went to management. And I really enjoyed management, especially the HR side of things. And I was enjoying the HR side so much that I went and got my master's in HR and then wanted to dabble outside of veterinary medicine in HR um, just to see if, you know, hey, can I swing it outside of veterinary medicine? So, you know, and also just kind of broaden my experience. So I worked in the contract pharmaceutical research industry. So I did that for a little while doing HR, started getting more involved in learning development at that time. And then from there worked at a nonprofit exclusively in learning development. It was a nonprofit in the legal industry. Can I ask right there about, I'm just curious about learning development. Are you literally talking about just sort of internal curriculum or is there a much wider band of things you covered in learning development? Yeah. So it's interesting that you say that because I was doing um, just internal learning development at the time. So it was training for, well, when I was at the CRO, the contract research organization, it was Mm -hmm. um, training for our scientists and for, you know, our internal teams, basically the majority of our population, our employee population were scientists, but doing trainings for them. And then later on, when I went to the nonprofit, it was creating trainings and it would be a wide range. It would be, you know, leadership, um, DEI, things like that. But then also, you know, we do trainings to help prepare them for when they would go to some of the um, detainment centers because it was actually an organization that helped refugee children who were coming unaccompanied to the United States seeking asylum. So we would help prepare people for some of the, you know, emotional traumas and things that they would go through when they were going to those centers to help those children. So yeah, so it was, you know, really rewarding experience. But the thing I was going to say that's kind of funny about that, that you mentioned that is that um, my current role, so how I jumped back into veterinary medicine, is that I um, started working at Patterson and, you know, now in my role, I'm, you know, working um, for a veterinary distributor, but I am in learning and development. And it's, you know, I do a little bit of internal training, but I also do a lot of courses and or creating courses and content for veterinarians and vet tech. So it's, uh-huh. you know, it's external facing. 
So, you know, we create a product for our customers, you know, that are the veterinary support and management teams and everything. So it's the first time I've ever been a role doing that sort of thing. So it's, it's a completely different lens for me and it's been really exciting. So did it feel before? So it sounds like the first times you did things. So when you got into this in the HR world and management world at a practice, and then you went to work for these outside veterinary medicine companies, it's all built into HR because it's, you know, it might be wound up in other departments inside the company, but it's all kind of, I could see how that could be one lens. But now you're talking about, if you're talking about facing out to the customers, now you're kind of winding in sales and winding in marketing and winding in public relations. Is that the kind of difference that it, you felt? Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm no longer part of like HR learning development. So <laughs> okay. yeah, it's a little different in that way. So, you know, I would say that I feel this endless creativity in my role now. I'm on an amazing team too. So I'm very grateful for that, you know, and, and our, our leadership is just very supportive of being innovative and, you know, and trying to think of like, okay, so here's the need for the veterinary teams out there and and how can we solve for that? So it's been really fun. And it's also, it's neat to think about like, okay, I was in those shoes years ago and things have changed, but you know, what would I have liked to see, you know, in a course or, you know, a blog article and then getting to kind of produce that. So it's a little different than, you know, anything I've done in the learning development realm in the past. So, so yeah, it's definitely been a lot of fun. And when I heard you had exactly that role at Patterson and that you'd kind of had the chance to go out into the wider world and then come bring all that stuff you'd brought in in a more focused role, I was kind of excited. Oh, hey, everyone's talking about this is perfect because you do internal education stuff. And right now everybody's talking about how hard it is. So forget the hiring part, how hard it is to hold on to people and how important education is and how important you give people a ladder of learning things in the job. And then you're like, oh yeah. And there's this failure point onboarding. And I thought, oh yeah, onboarding is a major problem. I think most times it's not systematized. It's just, we have a talented person in some department. Right now they're hiring people as desperately as they can. So you get someone hired in who is the best person to teach them how to do this. And then, and they'll learn on the job and it just won't be systematic. So I want to ask you from the time you spent at practice, and then when you went out doing internal education, a lot of times HR is responsible for all the stuff. When people get hired, I feel like HR oftentimes is responsible for whatever, the some cultural stuff or some legal stuff or some parts of the job, they'll give you the things you're supposed to learn. So onboarding, where do you see the failure points in onboarding today, either in your past or what you're thinking about now in the new things you're producing? Yeah. Sorry, I was like thinking about so many things as you. <laughs> I think I wandered <laughs> too much. Like there are all these questions that could come flying out of that, and then no, like oh, I need to take notes. What's wrong with onboarding? <laughs> yeah, so I would say that really the scenario you describe of you know choosing someone on the team that is really skilled in you know their job or skilled in training, that's probably a middle to you know elevated situation where it's like, okay, this is ideal. Oh, so you're actually like shadowing, like, oh, shadowing's already pretty good up the line. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously we have practices that are just doing an amazing job where they have, you know, phase training. They've got all sorts of things lined up. They've got a specific 
training team or person. But I think that there's a lot of situations, whether it be due to just being understaffed or in just not knowing where to start, what the process should be, that there isn't even, oh, we're going to pair you up with somebody. It's just, well, we saw your resume. It looks like you could do all these things. So <laughs> get at it. Like, and we're definitely, you know? our people are suffering. They're angry and sad and tired because we're understaffed. So you sound great. You're in. Yes. And just kind of, you know, thinking that practice A is going to be the same as practice B. So just go ahead and jump on and get rolling. And it's so different. And, you know, I think that we also, we underestimate how much that, and this might sound a little cliche, but it's true, you know, how much the human brain can actually retain day to day, week to week. And it's very easy when we've been at a practice or really any employer for a year, even six months, you know, you, you've been there for six months, you're kind of in a groove, you know, you feel like, oh, okay, this is all hat, I've got this. And it's easy when you have a new hire come on and you're seeing them fumble to go, you know, why are they not getting this? I'm so frustrated. Like, you know, this should be easy. Why is it not clicking with them? And then you start getting resentment from the team and, you know, and, and people feeling frustrated and not giving them enough time. And we really have to remind the rest of the team members, you know, okay, do you remember what it was like when you first started, you know, your first week or so, like how much time that took for you to really absorb that information and really getting them to have that patience and understand just the basic learning science behind that, that it really is such a small percentage that you retain and we have to go slow. Like as slow as you think that you should be going, you probably need to even step it back a little further. And you'll have those employees who will say, this is too slow, or those right. new hires that they just want to go, go, go. And a lot of times you need to kind of hold them back a little bit and say, it's okay. Like, I want you to just take this time and absorb this and like, we'll get you there. You know, we just want you to understand how we do it here and just kind of observe, you know, see how we interact with our clients, see what, you know, our value system and, you know, the culture is like all of those things. They really need to just kind of drink that all in and it takes time. So I think that a lot of it is just the training and learning and development culture needs to change first. And I think that that's you know, one of the first things that has to be addressed a lot of times in those practices when you're onboarding people. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions, a poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. 
let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. So if somebody has, okay, so we'll just have a hypothetical practice, which isn't that hypothetical or crazy, but a place that has trouble holding on to some people. Maybe some people have been there a long time, but then other times there are certain jobs that seem to rotate through and there's all kinds of reasons for that. But onboarding wise, if they have never thought really critically or really systematically about onboarding, is there a first step that if you're going to think about onboarding is the first step you're probably going too fast and you need to slow down or is it something else? If somebody's never looked at it and they sat down with you in a room and said, okay, Ori, tell me what's the first thing I should do. Do you have a first thing they should do to think about it? Yeah. I mean, I think more often than not, people are probably going a little too fast and expecting too much too quickly. But I think that another thing that is a huge first step or very helpful first step, if you're not already doing it, is having a thorough you know, well thought out, tried out, you know, actually tested a phase training program. And, you know, what that would look like would be you have one for your CSR, you have one for your technician, mm-hmm. your kennel assistant, your veterinary assistant, you have one for every single role in the practice. And what that would look like is you've got various levels. So you have vet tech one, vet tech two, three, so forth. And you really want to look at if you've got, you know, a fairly large team, or maybe you can reflect back on some of the people you've had who have been more tenured and maybe a little more junior and think about, you know, what does that skill level look like? What are some of the things they should be able to do if they were fresh out of school as a vet tech, for example, what is the bare minimum that you want them to be able to do? You know, maybe it's, um, yes, they should be able to do a blood draw, place an IV catheter, some of these basics. And then maybe, you know, the more advanced levels, they're doing some things in surgery that are more advanced techniques. You know, maybe they are placing urinary catheters, you know, there, there might be some other um, things you would add on. So you want to go ahead and create those. And then obviously talking to the people that do those jobs and saying, what do you think about this? Does this make sense? Do you think this is fair? You know, and, and really having some consultation, not just having the owner or the practice manager author all of these and saying, okay, this makes sense <laughs> to me and, and pushing them out. You know, you really should have it, you know, be something where it's a team effort. I really quickly wanted to ask about that because that phase training, you said phase training. I'm like, okay. And then, ah, and you really kind of have to have that list for across all the departments and you need to have the list for the level. So now we're thinking of kind of a vertical phase training and a horizontal phase training. I'm like, oh my God, I'm overwhelmed. And, and now I'm thinking about the thing you led with, which was people move too fast. So I wanted to ask you drilling down, if somebody wants to think about thinking through these phase training lists, if that's the first step, how often in your experience with working with people to decide how much a curriculum can teach and how long it takes, are people's first drafts of these phase training lists too long, too detailed? Do the drafts really need a lot of work? Or when you sit down with people and you would brainstorm and be like, no, that seems reasonable. A person starting here should definitely be able to do all those things. Or are they unrealistic lists? So I would say that they were too detailed probably in the beginning. So I think that, you know, when I remember the first one I had ever worked on, and it's funny because I'm speaking as a licensed veterinary technician myself, so this is not meant to, uh, nobody take offense. But 
You're including yourself in this group. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah. When us licensed veterinary technicians worked on the LVT one or the vet tech one, we got a little bit too much in the weeds where it was like, oh, okay, we can add this on. We can add that on. And it got to be a little much, you know, and it was a very long list and you don't want to make it where it's just exhaustive. So I think be cautious of that. Also, this process, like, yes, this is a good first step, but it does take some time. You know, there definitely is a lot of, okay, we're going to do, you know, this first wave of maybe what you do is you do all the roles and you do the first phase, the first level, Mm -hmm. and then you kind of see what everybody thinks. And then, you know, the next month you say, okay, let's work on the second one. And then maybe over the next, you know, six months to nine months, you know, you're going to make some edits and maybe um, have a meeting with everybody where you go ahead and do revisions as needed. So just don't put so much pressure on yourself to say, okay, we're going to get all these done within four weeks. Like right, we're going to have a busy weekend. We're going to draft all the phases and no, then the next no. week we're going to review them all and then we'll be done right in four weeks. Uh, yeah, no, that would not be reasonable. <laughs> and also there are a lot of, you know, resources out there. I know, you know, for example, you know, with Patterson Veterinary University, I mean, where I, you know, am a part of, um, we've got courses that include templates like this. So, you know, it might not be exactly what you would use for your practice, but it gives you a starting point and then you can kind of, you know, tweak it as you need to from there. So don't feel like, oh, I've got to start from scratch. Like you're not starting from, you know, a just white paper. Like there's lots of things out there, you know, VHMA is a great resource and, I'm not sure what templates they might have, but I'm saying that, you know, there's a lot of places that you can kind of dig around and say, oh, you know, has anybody done this and get on different discussion forums and share ideas with people. So definitely use the resources and the people out there, the practice managers and, you know, fellow owners who might have already done this before and see what they think. That would be my advice for sure. So over time, so let's our hypothetical veterinary practice, which is never properly looked at onboarding decides, hey, maybe we have a problem. Maybe we want to be forward thinking. And so they they take the time, the months to work on this phase training for their CSRs, their vet assistants, their vet techs, the management people. So they think about what would people need to do if they came in to do this job? What is the failure point? Once they've set up a phase training, awesome. Phase training, we've all decided what people need to do. Somehow we carved out all the time to develop this phase training and now it all looks good and it's done. Is there a first hurt everyone? Is there a first wall people hit when they set up phase training and then it's it fails to implement because X? So what I have seen most commonly done is managers just kind of blindly signing off on things just to get it done. So I think that you really need to have buy-in from the managers to understand hey, this is what this means. This is what mastery of this task looks like. Not just, oh, I saw them do it once. I'm going (laughs) to just check it off because I want to be done with this. And you also need to give time during the day for people to really get to show the task, you know, really get to see somebody do it you know, demonstrate it and then get them to demonstrate it themselves, get to practice if they're not really getting it and then get to, you know, really show that, okay, mastery is you can really do it several times without 
error, not saying you're perfect at it, but you've, you've really got it down. And if you are, you know, in a practice where people are not getting a chance to breathe, they're just backed up, you know, appointment, 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 surgery, they're not going to get a chance to do that. And what's going to happen? People are just going to sign off their initials, you know, just try to get it done. I mean, it's just another task that they feel like they need to turn in. So I think that's what you really need to be cautious of. And you certainly want to be careful if you are tying this to compensation that you don't have people that are, you know, that's how they're doing it because, you know, then it's just losing value. And obviously that's a a financial issue in the practice. If you have, you know, managers who are just signing off and saying, yeah, this person's a level three technician and really they might not be. So is there a default if, I mean, you haven't worked in all the practices of the world. So again, this yeah. might be a hypothetical. <laughs> a default cool. someplace where the everyone from the top to the bottom is really bought in on phase training and they talk about it and they all make time to do that evaluation and the viewing and the teaching and the reteaching and helping people along. And when it's checked off, they, everyone feels confidence checked off and they love it versus we'll set up the other side. People, as you've said, they're already busy. And then somebody got a wild hair up their butt and said, we need to improve our onboarding. And all the work fell on some people who felt already busy and they didn't have total buy-in and they're exhausted. And it feels like this level of micromanagement when look, the old way we used to manage these people was the clients liked them. They did fine with the patients. The doctors saw what they were doing and were fine with it. Everybody's fine with it. It all works. That's how we evaluated a hire. Is there a way that people who aren't bought into this when it first starts getting talked about that those people kind of eventually could nod and say, oh, yeah, I see the value of this onboarding. It's helping us here and here and here, even though it felt like micromanagement in the beginning. You know, I could see that perspective. And I will say you're right. I mean, I definitely I've I've not worked in all the practices, but it's funny when you said that it did make me think of, um, you know, there was one practice I worked in when I was in vet tech school. And I remember, you know, it was more of that kind of mom pa practice where you did have kind of that more like old school mentality of just like, hey, look, this works for us. And largely, I respect that. Like, you know, they had their clients that love them, you know, they've been around forever. And it was a smaller group of, you know, like, there's one technician who had worked in that practice for probably like 20 years, you know, had been there for a really long time. And then, you know, they had like, maybe one or two receptionists. And then there was one assistant. So really small group of people. And you would have a really hard time with that technician and owner who had been there for such a long time, you know, for really at the point I was in vet tech school, probably the length of my life (laughs) for me to come (laughs) in and saying, you know, hey guys, I've got an idea. So yeah, I think that what you would have to do, and really anytime you're trying to implement something that is going to make somebody else's life in their eyes more difficult, is you know, the whole what's in it for me. That's always the way you have to kind of persuade people. I mean, it's just, you know, negotiations. So so I think that if I was going to present that sort of face training to somebody who says, Hey, you know, it's been working for our clients or anything, for the owner perspective, I would say, or practice manager. I would say, you know, okay, imagine you get a new hire in and they're really not working out. They start out and uh, they said they could do all these things in the resume. They, you know, said they were great with clients, all this stuff. But then when you get them in here, it turns out they really can't do all those things. You know, maybe they aren't having the greatest client interactions, all these, there are all these issues. 
if you do a phase training program and after a certain amount of time, they're not getting these things signed off on and you've put an estimated date that these things are expected on average, they should be accomplished. This is just more documentation to help you if you were to say, hey, we need to start having some of those disciplinary conversations. So I think that that would be one avenue to kind of sell an owner or practice manager on that sort of program, that this might seem like more work, but it's also kind of helping ensure that hire. And this is not to take a negative stance on it, but what if you get somebody who, you know, they've said they can do all that stuff, but then they really can't, you know, this is, it's another way of kind of saying, okay, well, we need you to be dedicated and to prove yourself or even let's say they can do the things, but they're just, they're not invested. They start and they're just really like, they're apathetic. They're not trying to get anything signed off on. You know, again, this is a way to hold people accountable. So you can say, you know, yeah, well, we just always kind of like to see how people do with the clients. And like, that's how we assessed hire. It was a lot more casual. It was more qualitative, but that doesn't really hold up when you have to terminate somebody. No one likes to have to think about that, but I could say from an HR perspective, it <laughs> is very helpful to have those things documented. Can I ask, I am curious about that, but I really like that idea. Presenting the win for you and absorbing this new system that might initially be difficult. It could take the guesswork, make more objective benchmarks for firing. But can I ask you, does that mean in your experience looking at that, is the firer feel better And also, does the firee feel better when it's a clearer conversation like that? What have you observed? So I would say that definitely the person who is having to do the firing, the employer or the manager, you know, feels more confident in their decision, I think. So I think it makes that a little bit easier. I know that just when I was HR having to get involved, and a lot of times, you know, I would be pulled in and just be given all the documentation. You know, sure. I wasn't necessarily the manager of the person. It made me feel better being involved in that decision because it's never how you want to spend your day being involved in, you know, that sort of situation. But if you're like, okay, this seems justified, you know, it's the best decision for the company. I know we have to do this based off of this documentation, you know, then yeah, you feel more confident in it. But I think that it's kind of a toss up for the employee because I mean, you do have some employees who, you know, they just have such blinders on to the situation that even when you've had those conversations, you've tried to be very open throughout that they're not seeing it. It's unfortunate, but that happens. You know, I definitely think that if you're documenting and you are having frequent open conversations more often than not, they'll see that sort of, you know, thing coming and it won't be a surprise. That's the perfect scenario we hope for. You know, we never want somebody to feel like they were just blindsided by this. So yeah, that's what I would say to that. The other thing I I was going to add, you know, just we're talking about kind of finding value in the phase training when people are not really fully bought into it is that, Another thing with just, you know, thinking about equal opportunity and making sure that we are, you know, providing, if you're going to be doing pay raises, for example, and say like every year you've decided, you know, okay, in September, I'm assessing compensation for my entire team and I'm going to use 
the phase training and seeing where everybody is at. You know, if I've got vet tech one gets this sort of pay range and then the vet tech three level gets this sort of pay range, that can be another thing to help, you know, prove that this is why I made this decision. This is why I made this compensation decision. You know, if you were ever to have some sort of EOC claim, you know, then I think that that also helps to say, look, I've got some documentation behind why I made this decision. So that's another thing to kind of keep in mind, um, just from a managerial owner standpoint, that, you know, you've got some backing behind those, you know, compensation decisions you're making throughout the year too. So. Okay. So now you have addressed my issues internally. So externally, I think we kind of started thinking about, oh, there's a problem right now to find and retain great talent. So we're really not talking about what makes the employer easier job for the employer, but what makes it better for the potential employee and the employee. Can you maybe speak a little bit about phase training, how you've seen it, either it hasn't been done. And then if it's been implemented, why that was an attraction to applicants and how maybe that was an attraction and made people a better fit for the practice, doing better onboarding, the people coming in as opposed to the people bringing them on. Oh, yeah. Well, I know. I mean, for me, just on a personal level, I think that it's super attractive and that you feel like you have a roadmap. You know, you come on and you're seeing in front of you, okay, so this is what is expected of me you know, within this time frame, And then I know what I can get to do, what levels I can move up to in the next six months. And then, you know, in year two, three, and so forth. I remember when I was a neurology technician, I was very excited about the idea of potentially specializing at the time. And, you know, I ended up taking the management route, but still at the time I was thinking, you know, okay, so what kind of skills can I potentially accomplish at year two and three? And they had everything laid out in this phase training, you know, and they had different levels of technicians that they had signed and different skills. So it was exciting for me because I was getting to see my future with this company laid out. And that made me so much more engaged and dedicated to them because I felt like, okay, this is not just getting to see what the next 30 days is going to look like. Like I can really see that I've got development opportunities way down the road. So that was exciting. You know, I mean, it was also nice knowing that compensation was tied to it too. So, you know, (laughs) it doesn't hurt. So I think that that really helps because one of the questions that I always ask when, you know, I'm interviewed um, for a job is I always like to know, you know, what does success look like in this role? You know, what does it look like the first, you know, 90 days? What does it look like in the first year? Because I want to make sure that, first of all, we're matched, you know, and it's something that I feel like I can achieve and I would be interested in achieving. But then also, you know, I think it helps to just know, okay, if I start in this role, am I hitting those boxes. Like, am I, so I think that um, it really does help just for goal setting and for your confidence. I mean, you know, new hires want to know that they're making their new manager, you know, their new employer happy and they're proving themselves to them. And when they're seeing like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm hitting all these marks. I mean, that's a good feeling. So. Want to chat with Ori? She's at Ori, O-R-I, Dominique, D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E at gmail.com. 
That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.